Please note this episode contains explicit sexual references. Ugh, cults. Well, isn't it weird that all of the Armageddons haven't happened? Yeah. I guess one will one day and one prophet will have called it. Yeah. Correctly. <laughs> We're like, nailed it. We're like, oh, you're all dead. We can't. Damn, we joined the wrong cult. <laughs> <laughs> this is Was I in a Cult? I'm your host, Tyler Meesom. Along with me, Liz Iacuzzi. And today is part two of Guinevere's story in and out of a cult. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, we highly recommend you do that first. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't learn about the time that Liz had hope shoved up her ass. (laughs) Yes, that's the main reason. Yeah, or perhaps because it's filled with music and movies and pop culture references. And Tyler singing a lot. Yeah, it is a great story, though. Told by Guinevere, who is a great storyteller. I mean, obviously, because she is a screenwriter. But she's able to recall wonderful events about her childhood. Mostly because... I wrote in a diary every day. Mostly everyone wrote in their diaries. I would, mostly I would write about, like, the tape we listened to, who arrived or who left. I'm 10 and 11 in this one, the earliest one that I have. I'm obsessed with the fact that I don't want to hang out with those young kids because they're making me childish, and I'm a grown-up. I'm 10. (laughs) When I was a kid, they used to call me the little 44-year-old. And there was a reason for that. In the family, kids weren't allowed to be kids. Children as young as five couldn't show emotion, complain, or even get out of line. I was that kid who would, like, read an entire book that was made for grown-ups, but I would have no clue what it was about. But I would have read every word and been like, yeah, I've read that book. (laughs) Now let's catch you guys up. As you recall, Guinevere is part of a Boston-based commune led by the messianic musician Mel Lyman and his right hand, the millionaire painter's daughter, Jessie Benton. And when we last left Guinevere, she had just been, quote, bought by Jessie and Mel's daughter, Daria, and ushered into the inner circle of the Mel Lyman family. Jessie and whoever she wanted to bring with her would migrate to Martha's Vineyard for the summers and L.A. for the winters. And that was two cross-country trips a year. It kind of went Boston, Kansas, L.A., Kansas, Martha's Vineyard. I moved among all of those places at least five times. So it was like this whole long caravan trip back across the country. I remember as really fun because they had a CB radio. My CB handle was J9 because I was nine. So, you know, there was like talking to truckers, uh, you know, and then sometimes we would play like, is J9 over? (laughs) That's it. (laughs) So excited to say nothing. Just just to press the button and say something and just be excited when they were like, copy J9. I'm like, yes. Guinevere is living her best life. After all, she gets to travel with the king and the queen. They had a limousine, like a silver limousine with the license plate that said the letter U, the number R, all one. That was the point car. And then they had a fancy camper that was sort of where the adults were. And then we had a renovated school bus that said Venus or bust on the side of it. I am not kidding. And that was the kids' bus. That bus was also known as Jupiter. So it would be like four or five vehicles, and we would camp every night until we made it to our destination. And on those camping trips, Mel would often pull out and play his beloved banjo. 
Now remember, this wasn't just any man playing the banjo. This was God playing the banjo. And his followers, they believed he was God. He was sent to save the world. But not world people, (laughs) just us. (laughs) Again, world people being anyone outside of the Mel Lyman family. You know, one thing I often get asked is, do these cult leaders actually believe their own bullshit? You mean their dogma? Correct, their dogma. I'm 100% sure that Mel Lyman believed what he was saying. Right. Like, he wasn't making it all up to keep people... So, yeah, I guess that makes you crazy because, like, the spaceships were not going to come and they were not going to bring us to Venus. Totally the behavior of a crazy person. (laughs) (laughs) I realized that this particular person defines a lot of who I am, but also is challenging to me, but also feels like my family. Even after all these years. There's a part of me that just doesn't want to speak ill of him. It's still there, which is interesting. But at 10 years old, Mel was still an enigma to Guinevere. I didn't know anything about him. I mean, we were given these books and we were told the legend of who he played with and, you know, how the family came to be. Now, as you recall, it was Mel who wrote a book that started this particular movement. Oh, no, it's more than just a book, Tyler. It's his masterpiece, titled Autobiography of a World Savior. It was full of his ideas, although confusing, if you decide to believe it. And it's not terribly written. You know, like it's sort of compelling and like a lot of rhetoric in coercion groups, high control groups. If you want to find meaning, there's meaning to be found. Or you're like, that's just gibberish and it doesn't make any sense. Here's a little taste. We'll let you decide. All the old rules just don't work anymore. I know. I tried them all, and they were too limiting. They were made for a lesser man than me. If I have to write up a whole new set of commandments and creeds and laws and constitutions to make people freer, I'll sit right down and lay it out in whatever way best serves that purpose, and I will say, this is where it's at, and this is the law, and don't you dare not believe these words, or you'll go straight to hell, and I'll be making up as fast as I'm writing it. There is only one truth, that you must love more, and whatever that means to you is the truth for you, and there is nothing else to say. Uh, I have a few things to say. Like, for example, what the hell was that? Mel's drivel, I think they call that. (laughs) And Guinevere, she is a bit of an expert at deciphering it. In among the sort of rantiness of it is, you know, fight, make your own rules, challenge people. I mean, what can go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Mel also wrote another book entitled Mirror at the End of the Road. It's more of a memoir. A lot of it is sexually graphic. Like, here, I just saw something. September 1963, New York. Moderation is the key. Too much pussy is bad for the soul and pecker, but I'm definitely not getting too much pussy. In fact, I have voluntarily abstained from sex play. You see, I can't seem to fuck without love motivations, and I can't fall in love with a pussy. And though I'm told this is a gas and everybody seems to be doing it, I guess I just miss that boat and I miss that pussy. Oh! So essentially, Mel is saying he can't have one-night stands. He needs to be in love to have relations. So he's a hopeless romantic. Is that our first hopeless romantic cult leader we've covered? Perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. It's the first one who openly uses the word pussy. (laughs) But he can't just have pussy unless he has love motivation. He used pussy and pecker in one paragraph. Perfect. (laughs) Perfectly positioned pussy and pecker pontification. (laughs) Kudos, Mel Lyman. (laughs) 
We just read them, write about them, memorize them. Sort of religious text for us growing up. Just like somebody read that to your eight-year-old, see what they say. (laughs) Well, I bet we could conjure up a Bible verse that rivals it. Here's Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. I prefer Mel's version. It was a bit more flowery. And it came from the heart. Obviously, women found him incredibly compelling. He had 13 kids with nine different women, all of whom lived together and managed to be fine with it. But it wasn't just adult women that Mel was with. Oh, man. Not again. Mel Lemon had a a 13-year-old girl that lived in a room off of his room. That girl would have to, like, wait on him hand and foot, and no boys were allowed to go anywhere near her. Was there sexual abuse? I don't know how weird that got as time went on, but I'm guessing didn't go well. Unfortunately, the leader wasn't the only one with the teenage servant. Barf. It was just adult men taking 12, 13-year-old girls, and all of a sudden that girl was meant to serve him and sleep in his room and just follow him around and do whatever he wanted. But, like, I don't know what was really happening. So this is from my diary. So it's March 1st of 1979, also known as O2. I am an 11-year-old girl when I'm writing this. So just making up names right now. Sadie is a 13-year-old girl, and Bob is a 35-year-old man. Dearest Lavinia, I have a diary I named. This was Lavinia. Nothing at all to tell you. Oh, yes, exclamation point. Something Linda told me about Sadie. Well, what happened was Sadie sleeps in Bob's room on a cot next to his bed in case he wants anything. And Bob was mad at Sadie. So when he woke up, he told Sadie to go stand near the closet and put her face to the wall so he didn't have to see her. She did, and she stayed there for three and a half hours. Just stood there, exclamation point. Bob was terribly mad, so he told her she couldn't go to school. She sat around in the kitchen all day. He came downstairs and asked her what she was doing, and she said nothing. He said he hadn't had lunch yet, and she said, oh. He asked her nicely if she would make him some, and she said, I don't know what you want. This made Bob furious. He locked her up in her room. Then I wrote, sad, exclamation point. Good night. Hmm. Given that I start start out my passage with, oh, nothing really to tell today. Oh, wait, I didn't have an emotional reaction. I didn't understand yet because I was too young. Like, I can't express the injustice. Soon Mel started to fade from the leadership position. He was actually really sick and he didn't want people to see him sick. So he changed his schedule so you kind of never saw him. He would be up all night and sleep all day. And someone else stepped up as the de facto leader. Jesse Benton. Once he was receding, she took over. And sadly for the world, because it couldn't be saved anymore, in March of 1978, Mel Lyman died. Although legally his death is not confirmed, there is no death certificate. There's a conspiracy theory that he just got sick of being a cult leader and moved to Europe or whatever. So he faked his death, like Elvis. Oh, here we go. 
Ah, you know, Liz, (laughs) I wrote a term paper in college all about Elvis faking his death. I don't necessarily believe it, (laughs) but it's a very fun rock and roll conspiracy. Well, I did think I saw Elvis at Burger King recently. (laughs) (laughs) I might have been Elvis. (laughs) I think you're right. I think if the king were going to eat a burger, it would be from Burger King. And how would he order it? I'll take a seven Whoppers. Oh, (laughs) y'all got french fries back there? Thank you very much. (laughs) That's really good. Enough Elvis. So with Mel now dead or playing banjos somewhere in a conspiracy theory rock band with Elvis and Tupac. I'd buy that album. And the community closed off to the outside world. There were no new people. People sometimes got kicked out, but no new people came. People had kids. So those kids are new blood, but no new blood adults. My generation, by the time they were teenagers, they were like, you have to let us at least go to a public school because, like, we can't marry each other. We need fresh blood. There was a two-week period where they decided here in L.A. that they were going to send us all to public school. It was a disaster. (laughs) We were all just, like, huddled in a corner. We were scared. And we were clearly also probably really stood out because we're all these weird kids who only talk to each other, (laughs) who all came at once. (laughs) Sure, she may have been the outsider in public school. But back home, Guinevere was still very much the privileged cool girl, hanging out with the exclusive inner circle. But there was one woman in the group who had it out for her, mostly because Guinevere looked like her mother. She just did everything in her power to trip me up. And because of that, I was so nervous around her that I kept fucking up. Like, I got soap in the baby's eyes, and the final straw was everybody was cooking for dinner, and I was tasked to make the salad dressing, and I shook the bottle, and I didn't close it properly enough, and I sprayed her completely with salad dressing. Then I was shipped out the next day at 5 o'clock in the morning with nobody to say goodbye to me. She was sent from Martha's Vineyard back to the farm in Kansas. Why, why was suddenly just like shunned and sent away? I don't know what anyone's logic was, but it was devastating. You know, I was totally demoted. In some ways, it was very like high school because people would be popular and then not popular with like one queen bee. It was like you just fall out of favor. I fell out of favor. But all was not lost for our little Cher Horowitz. Because I had just been living with Jesse and the cool kids for, you know, years. I was like, oh my God, I'm like such a rock star here. (laughs) (laughs) But because this was a cult and not Bronson Alcott High School, her rock star status didn't last long. You're throwing out references I don't know. Ugh, as if. Clueless. (gasps) Got it. Bingo. So Guinevere continued living and working on the farm. And then one day. We were at the kids' house and then somebody called. They said, you're wanted at the big house, which is the adult house, to me. Everybody was like, that can't be good. So she went to the big house, right as the adults were having dinner, and approached the man seated at the head of the table. And he told me, your mom left. Her mother, as a reminder, had been on a separate compound for eight years. So when she heard the news that her mother had indeed left the Mel Lyman family... I kind of fake cried. Because I thought that's what was expected of me, but I didn't really feel that bad about it. Because sadly, she had no real connection to her birth mom. Then he told me that I had to go. Mel's dogma constituted that in order to be a child in the group, you had to have one biological parent also in the group. Which is part of the mindfuckery of it all, right? 
We don't value nuclear families, yet you need your nuclear family to validate your existence within the group. So I, like, really begged to stay. She begged to stay in the cult. She was 12. It was her everything. Her entire life. It was all she knew. The man listened to her appeal, then gave her instructions. And he was like, go talk to so-and-so in Boston. So they sent me to Boston. On a plane, by herself. And all she remembers is... Staring out the window and crying. But also, like, working out my speech, hoping that I could make a case for myself. So Guinevere landed in Boston, and she was taken to the main house and stood before one of the leaders. One of the more powerful men. And 12-year-old Guinevere pled her case with all of her might. But it fell upon deaf ears. And he said, you have to go now, but if you really, really, really don't like it out there living with your mom, you can come back when you turn 18. Messed with my head for years. Then they drove me and my sister, who was four at the time, to my grandmother's house, which is in New Jersey. I'd met my grandmother once. And it was there where she saw her birth mother for the first time in years. Her mother stood in the doorway, looked right at her daughter and said, I never thought I'd see you again. That is what she said. I never thought I'd see you again. I'm like, I'm your child. Yeah, that was rough. But I I wasn't mad at her. My biggest thing was like, see? Like, she doesn't want me. Like, let me go back. But her mother refused. She wouldn't let me, which is a good thing. But I hated her for it at the time. I spent the rest of that year, like, every week being like, okay, mom, they said I could go back. I want to go back. Guinevere now felt like an outsider everywhere. I remember my very first day of school was the middle of the school year. It was lunch, so I just was walking in there with my mom and meeting the teacher. And there was one girl in the class, and she just (laughs) was running out of the room. She's just like, the hamster's in the cigarette! The hamster's in the cigarette! And I was like, I'm never going to make it in this world. They just built a model cigarette, and the class hamster got stuck in it. Uh But like to me, it was just like, this world is crazy. (laughs) I don't even know what a cigarette is. I'm never going to make it. Why would a hamster be in there? By the way, a ziggurat is a large terrace compound built in ancient Mesopotamia. Great Scrabble word. It just was very daunting. And also at that time, I was starting to look around and see that I for sure was dressed differently. With limited access to the outside world, Guinevere was stuck in a decade earlier. I was wearing green velour bell bottoms, which I made. Then they had big pockets all the way, like halfway down my thigh, which I loved. And a blousey kind of thing that I made with it was white with big purple flowers on it and a tie right here a tie in the front and brown boots that came up to my knees and hair of course down to my ass all of which I thought was so super fly that outfit would kill today but at the time it was 1979 not 1969 and now everyone had feathered hair and was wearing designer jeans I was miserable and sad and alienated and lonely and had no one to talk to and It wasn't a pretty transition. (laughs) 
I was constantly trying to catch up and figure out what was socially acceptable and how I could be cool, and I was a weirdo. Not so much a weirdo, perhaps, but conflicted. She'd been told her entire life that the kids that were now her peers were evil. But she was used to a certain level of clout from her days with Daria. So if Guinevere couldn't win them over with her appearance, she would find another way. I quickly emerged and had an identity as, like, a smart kid. Even though I wasn't a cool kid, there was a level of respect there. But kids will be kids. There was two girls who, I think, felt sorry for me. Like, I was, like, a project for them because I was obviously such a weirdo. I learned pretty quickly once I started talking about where I really came from that they just couldn't handle it. So I would say things like talk about the banjo or, like, Bing Crosby, and I could just see on the look on their face that, like, it was too weird. They weren't curious, like, what? Why would you? They were just like, oh, weird. Kids are dicks. <laughs> so I think my biggest project in that first year was learning to hide where I came from and working really hard to assimilate. So by the time I got to high school, to ninth grade, there wasn't a trace of cult on me. Even though at the time she still did not know that it was a cult. And while school life came with its challenges, so did life at home with her mother. And why did her mother leave Mel and the family in the first place? I think that she probably didn't really ever want to be there in the first place. And I think that this man that she was with, who is the father of my brother and sister, he was going to leave. And so she saw like a way out, like a, a person to go out into the world with together and figure out how to make a non-culty life. But it's important to note that just because you physically leave a cult doesn't mean you're actually out. Basically, my mom chose to leave with a man who wanted to be a cult leader and tried to replicate that life that he wasn't allowed access to in the cult, in his own little mini cult. And he would have pictures of Mel Lyman on the walls, and he would do a lot of things that were as if we were still in the family. The man that my mom left with was a horrible, abusive person. Thankfully, they escaped, and they all moved in with her grandmother. My grandmother was like, let me teach you all what a restraining order is. A useful tool to have. And finally, Guinevere seemed to be free from the cult, free from domineering angry men. I was going to school back in the New Jersey school. I had gotten a job at the mall, and life seemed like it was going to be okay. And then one day, she was home alone with her younger brother and sister. Just blasting the radio. My youngest sister, Julie, was really cute because she could sing the words to Cindy Lauper's True Colors, but, like, she couldn't actually say the words, so she would just be like, True color, And so I was just having a gale time with my brother and sister, thinking that I was safe, and this man just shows up. The wannabe Mel Lyman walked into the room. And he was just standing there. And he said, it's time for you all to come home. And I was like, mm, don't know what to do. And so I said, well, I have to go to work. Can you please just take me to work and, you know, we'll figure this out. And so I got to work, my job in the mall. I called my boyfriend. Her boyfriend, Brian, knew all about the prior abuse occurring at her mother's home. And Brian said... My dad said that you can come stay with us and that he will adopt you. I didn't really believe that it could be true that it was happening. But I said to my mom, 
I'm leaving. I can't deal with this. Sadly, her brainwashed mother moved back in with the abusive mini cult leader. But Guinevere... I packed my suitcases. I left and went to Brian's house. And I eventually his dad became my legal guardian. He never, ever asked me what happened. I think he knew enough from Brian. She had finally found a home, a real home. And high school was awesome because it was just my boyfriend's dad. And his dad was a lovely man and let me do whatever the fuck I wanted. So, like, my house was the party house. I was, like, in the play and the editor of the newspaper. And my new persona was way more popular. Soon, she graduates from high school and she begins to prep for college. And before she embarks on this big, scary journey into a young adulthood full of the unknown, she thinks about her previous life in the Lyman family. About the camaraderie, the safety. And a thought pops into her head, something one of the leaders told her on the day she got kicked out. You can come back when you turn 18. And here she was, finally 18 years old. I don't think I fully admitted it to myself, but I think I was wanting to see what it would feel like. So she went back to the Boston compound. It had been six years of detoxing the cult from her life, yet she walked in and was like, it's home. All of a sudden, it all just looked like rose-colored glasses. Like, it was just really, I just felt really at home. And I'm like, these are my people. And then, like, a lot of them were like, you know, don't go to college. Stay here. Like, you'll never have to work another day in your life, and you can be with us, and this is where you belong. Now, Guinevere's back living with the family, and she falls right into step with the group, as if not a day had passed. She felt loved and accepted. It's just been so interesting, because I really have been so focused for most of my life on my experience of this family, these people, that I haven't really ever looked at it as an adult. She had now been living back on the compound for one whole week. And then one night... Everybody was hanging out after dinner, and there was a man, one of the more powerful men, who was sitting in a chair. And I was like sitting on the floor next to him. A lot of people were sitting on the floor. And his wine glass was empty. And he just went like this, like handed it to me without saying anything, meaning fill it. And all of a sudden, it was like, click. I just looked around, and I'm like, oh, if you're a woman here, you have to serve men, and you have to do what they say. And I was like... Nope, I'm going to college. (laughs) One little gesture was just like, everything got crisp for me. Yay for misogyny. For it saved her life. Correct. College was exactly what Guinevere needed. She was smart, exploring, experiencing, doing all the things you're supposed to do in college. Bong heads and keg stands. (laughs) You had a very different college experience than I, Liz. What'd you do? You wrote essays about Elvis. (laughs) Yes. Nonetheless, Guinevere put her upbringing in the rearview mirror as if it had never existed. But sometimes objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they really are. I was 
22, I think. I was with my first girlfriend, and she heard everything about my life and upbringing and struggles. And she said, you really need to go to therapy. And I was like, I don't want to go to therapy. I guess I was raised to believe that therapy was for pussies. Oddly enough, you don't need to have been raised in a cult to feel this. Many people of my generation, men especially, are afraid of therapy. They think it's for the weak. Someone once said to me that therapy is a privilege, not a punishment. But I went because, you know, my girlfriend was going to break up with me if I didn't. Whatever it takes to get you there, right? So, being the great storyteller that she is, she enraptures a therapist with tales of her childhood living on a commune. And she said, that doesn't sound like a commune, it sounds like a cult. And I was like, cult? Like Jim Jones, Charles Manson, like cult. The therapist gave her literature from the Cult Awareness Network, which is an organization that helps rescue individuals from cults. And then reading all this anti-cult stuff, I was defensive. I was surprised. I was like, they don't understand this life. And they're like putting this particular spin on it that makes everyone who lives an alternative life evil or aberrant in some way. But after a year of therapy and reading the cult awareness newsletter? At some point I had decided, okay, I guess you would call what I grew up in a cult. Full disclosure, the Cult Awareness Network, which was founded in 1978, had helped tens of thousands of individuals leave cults. This network went bankrupt in 1996. It was, however, purchased and is now currently being run by none other than Scientologists. Who use it as a forum to convince callers that Scientology is not a cult. Full disclosure, it is. When I would say I grew up in a commune, people would be like, oh, hippie parents, like free love, like, well, you must have been... Now when people ask me where I came from, I have to say I grew up in a cult. And that wasn't necessarily easy for her. To admit that it's all a sham means you have to kind of like tear down your house of cards and start all over like my mom. She still can't talk about it. She still is just like, you know, it was weird. It was a different era. I said to mom, you have a college education, you're an intelligent person, like just start here. You knew that even scientifically human beings cannot actually live on Venus because of the actual environment. And she's like, it's complicated. Until one does the work to actually heal from the trauma induced by a cult, or any abusive relationship for that matter, denial is a really great tool. And the Lyman family? I suppose they're done now? Oh no, Tyler. They're still rocking on across the country, including a compound right here in Los Angeles. It's in West Hollywood. It's a very unassuming gate. But inside is two houses, a pool, a tennis court, the schoolhouse, you know, a pretty sizable piece of property. And then Jesse's father's paintings are like hanging everywhere in the house and worth millions of dollars. I live next to West Hollywood. Should we jump the fence? You know, we could play a couple of sets, cool off in the pool and swipe an original Benton or two. You bring the sunscreen, I'll bring the ladder. Perfect. We will be robbing this compound. (laughs) And next week you'll have new hosts. And the group is also rolling in it due to a highly profitable construction company. Called Fort Hill Construction, which is actually really successful here in L.A. They built an extension on Madonna's house, and they do well working on celebrities' houses because celebrities trust, like, we're not going to talk about you, and you're not going to talk about us. So, weirdly, it's like, you could be in a cult, or you could be a celebrity. (laughs) 
But celebrities get better tables at restaurants. Naturally, Guinevere has taken a few positive things from her upbringing in the cult, but one is rather unique. You guys remember how the girls were taught to embroider? As girls, we were never allowed to not be doing something with our hands if we were inside. So, like, those houses are full of, like, chairs with hand-embroidered seats. And now she uses that skill for more than chairs. You know the bear in Griffith Park? The statue that's mm-hmm. yes. uh, that's right when you go up Franklin? I went through a phase where I would make clothes for that bear, crochet clothes for that bear. <laughs> <laughs> True fact. NPR did a story on me, actually. If you were among the thousands of Angelinos who visited Griffith Park yesterday, you may have noticed a pair of bunny ears on the statue of the bear that stands at the entrance to the park. At various times, that bear has been clad in lederhosen and in a jumper decorated with hearts, lovingly crocheted by an anonymous yarn artist. Captain Hook, as she's asked me to call her for this story, sits in the front seat with a lap full of crocheted granny squares. So why did she take up this very specific hobby? I had just gone through a bad breakup, so I was like, I could become a heroin addict, or I could put all my energy into this really weird thing. (laughs) I probably put like 15 outfits on that bear in 2011, and then other people started doing it, and it was like this whole cool thing. When she first started clothing the bear in October, little did she know she was part of an international movement of so-called yarn bombers, people stitching cozies onto public fixtures like stop signs, parking meters. I, like, reclaimed my needlework training. And when a scarf appears around the bear's neck later that week, she feels that maybe her work here is done and contemplates moving on. I was just looking the other day, and there's a dolphin in Santa Monica somewhere that is actually standing much like the bear, fins out. When I saw that, I was like, dude, your days are numbered. And so how does Guinevere survive today? Well, by dressing bears in lederhosen, by writing, and by facing her cult past head-on. I mean, I guess a survivor is someone who has found a way not to live in that trauma every minute. I found a way to not live in trauma, first of all, by not letting it define me, which is a tricky space because obviously here I am talking about it. I think it's powerful to put forth that people who either were born into cults or who joined them at points in their lives are not people with spirals for eyes. You know, we're just normal humans who get sucked into various things or born into various things and survive them and figure them out. And figure it out, she has. She continues to write screenplays. In fact, she recently wrote the movie Charlie Says, which just so happens to be about the Charlie Manson cult, but focuses on the point of view of the women who killed for him. Guinevere also has a memoir coming out. We are so excited to read it. I am so excited to read it, too. Could you have a time machine? I'm just dying to jump into it and be like at the book party. Of which we're invited to. Right, Guinevere? I'm going to come dressed in embroidered lederhosen. And I'm going to come dressed as 1979 Guinevere, but I will look like 1969 Guinevere, except my hair doesn't grow that long anymore. I can't wait for the party. Please invite us. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Guinevere, for coming to the studio not once, but twice to share your awe-inspiring story with us. And folks, keep a lookout for her memoir, coming soon. She's not sure of the release date yet, but once we know it, we'll share it with you. But while you wait for her story, there are plenty of other great stories right here on Was I in a Cult, including this one from next week. 
the leadership just naturally accumulated more wives than anybody else. It was kind of a confirmation that God saw them as a more righteous order member by blessing them with another wife. The leader of the order, he's got 27 wives. And in the meantime, if you're a hamster, stay, stay out, out of, of the ziggurat. Wasain Occult is story produced and written by myself, Tyler Meesom. And me, Liz Iacuzzi. Executive producer is Maya Cole Howard. Supervising producer is Catherine Burt Canton. Audio editor is the amazing Chandler Mays. Additional story producer is Ari Basile. And our superfan of this week is Dr. Whitney Blankenship. Thank you so much for discussing our podcast. Thanks, Whitney. We appreciate it. Visit us at wasianacult.com and learn how you can support the podcast on Patreon. 